Welcome to The Voice of Retail. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc. This podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. On this special episode, I am thrilled to be sharing an excerpt from the most popular Remarkable Retail podcast of our third season, where my podcast partner and best-selling author Steve Dennis and I interviewed Daniel McCarthy, professor of marketing at Emory's Gonzaga Business School, co-founder of the Theta Equity Partners, and pioneering thought leader on customer-based corporate valuation. It's a fast-paced masterclass on how the cost of acquisition, retention rates, and other customer cohort data provide valuable insights on the long-term prospects for any retail brand. When people would think about unit economics, they would think about it, but they'd, they'd have a different unit. And, but the unit would mm. be the store. And here, mm. yeah, I think the, the reason that the world has changed is, you know, for one, all these companies, they do have the great CRM systems. Uh, a lot more of their purchase behavior is very easily trackable, you know, especially when we move to all these direct-to-consumer businesses. Then we have perfect uh, Data. trackability. There, yeah. And so we can actually c- carry out the analysis. Let's listen in now. Well, Michael and I are delighted to welcome Dan McCarthy to the podcast. And Dan, rather than us trying to do an introduction for you, we we love to have the guests just tell us a little bit about themselves and their professional journey, and then we'll jump into some of the more substantive questions. Yeah, sounds great. So, yeah, I'm I'm an assistant professor of marketing at Emory University. Uh, My main area of focus is really uh, predicting what customers will do and then translating that into implications for the health of firms, typically. Uh, The other hat that I wear is not as an academic, but as an entrepreneur. Uh, I've co-founded a business called Theta Equity Partners. Uh, We basically use these same sort of predictive models for customers, but we use it to help understand you know, how healthy are these businesses? You know, if you're a private equity firm or a hedge fund or a venture capital firm, and you're looking at that, that latest company that uh, yeah, has come on your plate, we'll basically help you understand um, the unit economic health of the firm and, um, and how that, all that rolls up into to overall valuation. So yeah, it's, it's basically the, the topic of my uh, PhD dissertation, you know, which is customer-based corporate valuation. Um, so yes, that's about where about where I am in terms of where I've been, I'd actually had co-founded a, a prior business called Zodiac that again used these same sort of customer models. So I'm basically a, a one-trick pony, but I really <laughs> like that one trick. <laughs> um, so yeah, but at Zodiac, we basically use the models to help marketers make customer acquisition retention decisions. So again, same models, different use case. Uh, we grew the business and sold it to Nike in March of 2018 before founding Theta. So yeah, that's a uh, basically a little bit about me. You know, can you just kind of at the very high level help us understand what this idea of customer corporate-based valuation is and just, you know, some of the fundamental principles of customer lifetime value and some of the other techniques you use that would be different than maybe uh, way things uh, things people might be familiar with or have used in their jobs. Blue Apron is a really good example of how the framework can be useful. Um, basically, these days, more often than not, you know, companies are going public, and they kind of have two main characteristics. They're growing really quickly, and they're losing money. <laughs> and the big question is, which of those businesses is actually going to hold value over the long term? And so one of the big questions, first off, is, you know, is there a path to profitability? And if so, you know, how, how quickly are they going to get there? And I view this as basically a way to really nicely answer that question. And the reason why is because... Um, when we think about you know, basically what, what drives operating leverage uh, over time, 
it's the ability to make more money after you've acquired a customer than how much you spent when you brought that customer in in the first place. And a lot of these businesses that we'll look at, they'll have to basically expense all of the money that they're spending to acquire customers today. And they're going to get this value from those customers into the future. And so the big question is, well, how long into the future is that going to be? And how much, how much profit is that going to bring? If you have a business that doesn't have a whole lot of repeat buying behavior and they don't make a whole lot of profit off those purchases, you spend all that money up front and you're not going to get a whole lot in the back end. Um, you know, conversely, if you had another business that did uh, a lot of repeat, pur- a lot, a lot of repeat purchasing, actually their historical profitability may look similar to that first company, but we can see that over the long run, they should be able to compound revenue growth much more easily. And those repeat orders are probably a lot more profitable than the, the initial one that you had uh, spent all that money to bring the customer in in the first place. So yeah, so CBCB in some ways is just kind of a way to formalize all that. And it kind of recognizes this basic accounting identity that all the revenue has to come from customers. And so if we just have a formal model that lays out, you know, this is the flow of customer acquisitions over time. This is how long they'll stay after they've been acquired, you know, order frequency, basket size, and then the profitability of those orders. It allows us to basically do the same thing that the bankers probably had been doing before, but we can do it more accurately because we have this diagnostic set of best-in-class marketing science models to make the predictions, and we get for free that that look at you know, the the underlying unit economic health of the firm as viewed through you know the customer lifetime value you know customer acquisition cost framework. Let's pull on a couple of threads in that in that narrative. First of all, how did you come to build or have this perspective? You know what what in your background led you to this model? Did you try other models and find them unfulfilling and unpredictive, or what is it that led you to develop and, and focus in this area of of expertise? It's a good question because I, I probably wouldn't have been so interested in this if I didn't spend six years working at a hedge fund. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, before all of the you know, before the PhD, before Zodiac, and and all that. Uh, I'd, I'd been on the buy side uh, working for a fundamental investment fund. And we basically looked at a lot of businesses and did kind of the traditional thing where you roll up the sleeves, you speak to the management team, you look yeah. at the competitive dynamics in the industry, and then you build out some really big spreadsheet. <laughs> a SWOT analysis thrown in maybe for, for a good PowerPoint slide. and Yeah. And, and especially you know, with the people that I work with, they were former McKinsey consultants. And yeah. so, yeah, they did, they did a lot of that sort of thing. Mm. And, um, and so, yeah, I kind of had this predisposition towards valuation. Uh, when I went to Wharton, I, I, I actually I finished with a, a PhD in statistics, not even in, in marketing. But in the in the second year of the program, uh, someone said, you know, you should really speak with this guy Pete Fader, who you know, uh, you know Steve, you were mentioning, and uh, we we really kicked it off. But I really don't think that if if I didn't have both the the hedge fund background and you know, I wasn't going for a statistics PhD. I wouldn't have really, this wouldn't have been a, a natural step at all. It was really the fact that, you know, I, I'm just like a prediction guy who happened right. to have worked at a hedge fund for a while. <laughs> uh, you know, that's kind of what, what, what led me to it. Yeah, you could ask a, the, the next question in kind of a funny way. Why would anybody look any other way at companies. I mean, you know, when I think about, you know, Steve and I talk about this often on the podcast when, when these results come out in the market is like, 
you know, gobsmacked at these great results or disappointed. I mean, you know, some of these things seem maybe obvious. And the, the way that they've been looking at companies, it seems, hasn't changed. Why, why do people not adopt what seems to be a very, okay, how much money are you going to make? And unit economics still matters. Is it, is it like Aswath uh, talks about it at Stern, you know, story stock versus a performance stock? Like, give me a broader context about why this model is, is not the model that, that uh, uniformly is, is we see in the media, for example. So first, I, I definitely, I think that 10 years from now, it is going to be the model. Um, yeah, so I think we're, we're getting there. I think the reason why we haven't seen it yet has been, uh, first, just a, that it's impossible to do sometimes. Um, and, and there's a few reasons why. You know, one would be when we think about a company like Nordstrom you know, or JCPenney, they spent most of their existence selling through stores. And, mm-hmm. and oftentimes the customers making the purchases bought in cash. And they may not have had a great CRM system. And if they don't have, basically, if you're kind of even somewhat similar to those examples, Mm. you won't actually even know how many customers you have. (laughs) And so when you think about, well, what is my CAC? How much am I spending to acquire customers? If you don't have how many customers you acquired, you can't even get started. So, um, So I think, you know, back in the day... Uh, a lot more of their purchase behavior is very easily trackable, especially when we move to all these direct-to-consumer businesses. Then we have perfect uh, trackability. And so we can actually carry out the analysis. But even there, we'll run into problems if the companies don't disclose any data in their SEC filings. So even if they they are a direct-to-consumer brand, we can only run with whatever we're able to find. And so, so if they don't provide anything in their SEC filings, then, you know, we can have this great framework, but we don't have any data to apply it to. Uh, so hmm. yeah, I think we're kind of hitting that sweet spot where, you know, for one, we do have, like they have the availability and everyone realizes how important this is. And so the companies, whether it's that they feel they have a compulsion to disclose it, because if they don't, they're going to get hammered <laughs> by their right. investors, yeah, right. or you know, or they Steve, just want to show or Steve off. Steve or you or whoever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I think you know, whatever the reason might be, I, I you know that that's I'll leave that to people better than me. They're just disclosing this stuff a lot more frequently than before, and right. so yeah. So now we can finally do this mm. with a lot more regularity than we ever could before. I was going to say it's interesting. Uh, you know, I spent a few years at Neiman Marcus. One of the things that was just a huge advantage to to your point was we were able to u- uniquely identify a very high percentage of our customers' transactions because we had such high spending on our own credit card, and we had a very big direct business, and we had a lot of clienteling through our point of sale system, and so our ability to do this kind of analysis was much greater than your typical retailer. So I, I almost kind of, not that I didn't realize that that was something unique, but I got pretty well versed in some of these techniques. And when I started to work more with these digitally native brands, some of this way of thinking was just something I was pretty comfortable with. But but I think, yeah, it's been, there hasn't been a lot of, a lot of ability from the outside to look in. Who's the yep. gold standard for this? Using your models, whether it's your academic models or your the models in your theta or your private businesses, who's who, what's the gold standard in, in all this? I when I think of retailers, I think of someone like a Costco, who you know license plates 
due to the membership, every single transaction, and that's more common. That's baked into their business. But from your clients, when they use it, who's, who's gold standard? Uh, yeah, gold standard in terms of, you know, like the ability to track customers and run the models. Usually the it's shooting fish in, in a barrel with subscription firms. Mm, right. <laughs> yeah, they're obviously, if you're a subscriber, like we know who you are. We know yeah. when you, obviously we know when you were acquired, but we know exactly when you churned too. Um, and that's really convenient. Uh, so, yeah, so usually in a setting like that, it's really easy. You know, so we have this great trackability uh, from a modeling perspective. Usually there's not a whole lot of variation in spend and purchase frequency. We need to worry about, you know, the concept of a major holiday period or some other spike because of a big promotion that's run. Um, you know, those just don't happen as frequently because you just kind of get your thing once a month or whatever it is. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so that simplifies the problem greatly. And actually, you know, Steve, you mentioned Blue Apron. I think there it was a good example. You know, not quite perfectly subscription-based, but enough of the subscription flavor that um, that the models you know, work really, really well. And then obviously the other component to it is if we had all that data using the full granular transaction log, even better. You know, So a lot of the work at Theta, uh, thankfully, these targets still put the full transaction log uh, in the data room. You know, basically, the data room is where all the all the data resides, you know, traditional financials and otherwise. So, yeah, so there we can build an even more granular model because we have you know even more granular uh, transactional behavior data. So let, let's uh, maybe uh, you know we talked about Blue Apron a little bit, uh, but there have been quite a few companies that have been in the news lately, um, either because they've filed their IPOs. Uh, or the response for an IPO like Warby Parker and Allbirds or Peloton, I know, has gotten a lot of press recently. Uh, could you maybe talk about some of those companies that you've been following and what you, how would you apply this this lens to thinking about their their valuation and prospects and any observations you might have that our listeners might find interesting? Yeah, so maybe uh, just about Warby Parker because uh, I think they're. They had dropped their S1 really recently, and just within the past uh, week or two. Um, you know, so they're, they're kind of a, they're the poster child of the direct-to-consumer, you know, digitally native vertical brands business, um, and born out of out of Wharton as well, right? So there's a there's a real connection there for you. Yeah, that's right. Professionally, yep. right? Yeah, they're uh, you know we've we've seen and met. Yeah, you know, I believe Pete's spoken with um, you know with the founders. So yeah, definite. Uh, and, and thankfully. You know, they've built a, a really nice business, so you know they're not they're not profitable yet. But at least you know the economics actually look pretty good. So you know we're in the process of finalizing this really deep dive that we did uh, into them specifically. You know the, the way that we ca- carried it out is basically the same way we carry out any analysis, and and that is that you know kind of step number one is to. You first do that same old exercise of saying, well, how much are they spending to bring customers in and then how much are they getting after they've been acquired? And then uh, you're kind of looking at the volume of customers that they're able to bring in over time and see how that's been, how, how that's been changing. And, um, and the nice thing here is, uh, you know, Warby, they provided so much data in their filing that we could really feel pretty confident about our conclusions. You know, I'd say one of the bottom line figures that we found is when they spend money to acquire customers, uh, they earn a rate of return of about 300% on that, on that customer. So, you know, that's kind of comparing 
the acquisition spend, which we estimated in 2020 to be on the order of 55 bucks, then they're making back a whole bunch of money in contribution profit terms after acquisition. Yeah, so they're not profitable, but the reason why is yeah, they're still in growth mode. They still need to acquire a whole bunch more customers. And when we do this unit economic calculation, you know, we're not baking in all the fixed cost overhead that is required to kind of stand up the business and bring those customers in. So what it would suggest is that they would have a nice, clear path to profitability as long as they're able to kind of maintain this level of unit economic performance you know, for the next few million customers that they acquire. How, how would your model flex if they decided they were going to use all that fresh ammunition and start buying competitors in their space? Because it feels like there's going to be consolidation in that space to me. Busy yeah, buying competitors, yeah, that we, it would be helpful to have you know, these same sort of measures for the competitors. You know, one thing we could do is we can basically change our assumptions about how much they're going to spend to acquire customers. And we can you know, change our assumptions about how much repeat business you know, that we'd expect from those customers. You know, so that would be kind of very easy to do, mechanically speaking. But you know, we just really want to be mindful of, like, what is reality? And um, are those customers that they you know, would be bringing in through an acquisition or otherwise, are they going to be fundamentally really different or not? Uh, so having some sort of empirical data that can help us pin that down, you know, we'd really want to, to make sure to, to kind of do that exercise before you know, really kind of pounding our fists on the table. Two questions, follow-up. One is a lot of folks have been talking about rent as the new cost of customer acquisition. And as you well know, and, and I'm sure most of our listeners know, a lot of these brands that thought they could grow and raise a lot of capital on the premise they didn't need stores are turning out, and Warby Parker's a great example, to be opening quite a lot of stores. How, how do you, what do you think, I guess, in general, that idea that, that rent is kind of this new cost of customer acquisition, and how would you factor, or do you factor that line of thinking into this analysis at all? Yeah, I believe it was Jason Goldenberg who, uh, he said that a store is basically like a giant billboard <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, that can kind of bring the customers mm-hmm. in. And certainly, when we think about Warby Parker in particular, um, if someone goes into a Warby Parker store, they can try on the glasses over there. They may not need the, you know, the, the direct try-on home kit, which you know, can be more expensive. So even just kind of doing that comparison of acquisition through one channel versus the other, you can very clearly see, obviously, there's rent for the, the store, but you know, assuming that you have a sufficient number of people who are coming in for the orders... Like the acqu- customer acquisition spend will certainly be just lower uh, th- through stores than not. Uh, I think the the tricky part is that it's hard to open your own stores. Obviously, if you spend a you know one million dollars or ten million dollars on Facebook ads, you know, assuming that you're able to you know to bring in good quality customers, you can just scale much more quickly. Uh, you know, finding great locations for stores is not trivial. <laughs> so mm. it's just not mm. something you can scale quite as quickly as, uh, as purely online channels. So I think, yeah, that, that is part of the trade. Be obviously, you know, the other part of the trade, I guess, is, you know, what we've seen with COVID that, um, you know, I think this was kind of a black swan type of event that no one could have ever really predicted, but they got hit pretty hard because, you know, as you kind of alluded to, you know, they're actually, you, you would think I, I had thought that they were a direct business that had some stores, but actually they're more like a store business that has some <laughs> direct <laughs> that they got something like two thirds of the revenue through stores before the pandemic. And so they really got walloped um, by COVID. But uh, 
but you know you can see from their quarterlies that um, you know things are looking a lot better, especially in the most recent quarter or two. So um, you know hopefully that's a sign that you know things are are starting to normalize for them. I mean Warby Parker is a really interesting company. I don't know how much we can generalize to some other companies, but the the second question I had as you try to think about long term value is I worked with one brand a bunch of years ago where my concern was that early on they basically found the perfect fit kind of customer for them without having to spend a lot of money on customer acquisition. And then to get to that next stage of growth, they basically were more going to um, have to go find customers. And because they were mostly digital, they were paying more and more to acquire a customer and the customers they were adding at the margin tended to be less valuable or more price sensitive, or they just didn't fit, you know, they, they were just kind of like going around the edges of, of customers that were a good fit for their model. And so my question is, and I'll just use the Warby Parker example, how do you know what the limit is of the sort of customer that's likely to shop at Warby Parker? And, 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 and is there this risk that decay rate, I guess, for lack of a better term, or the maturity curve is mm-hmm. beyond your current horizon, and therefore that might cause you to overvalue the company? Does that question make any sense? <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, and, you know, honestly, it, as you're kind of saying pretty directly, it applies both to the stores and to the direct business. You know, for the direct business, you know, oftentimes the canary in the coal mine is the CAC starts creeping up that you're just having to, to work harder to bring those customers in. And so, you know, basically the thermometer there is, you know, amount of marketing spend per customer required is just higher. But the fact that you have to work that hard oftentimes implies like a double negative that, you know, we, we found that there's often an, uh, a negative relationship between how valuable customers are after acquisition and how much you had to spend to bring them in. So when CAC tends to move up, the value of the customers often also tends to move down. Um, right. Because again, if you're working so hard, maybe they want to be there. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so for the direct business, I think that that would be the canary in the coal mine. Um, I think the analog for in the store setting, you know, might be a little bit harder to identify. You know, it could be some measure of, of foot traffic, for example, but um yeah, I got to admit, I'm, I'm I'm on more comfortable footing, um, you know, on the direct side of things. The other thing that could be a source of data, because again, it, it's kind of falling outside the range of the data, because it's saying like, at what point does the quality of your customers in the future, you know, at, at what point will it decline in some you know discontinuous way? Yeah, I think very smart survey work can help give you a hint of it, but you know, surveys come with their own issues. So, um, you really wouldn't want to lean too hard on them to, to help answer that question. But yeah, I think that that could be another thing in in the case of Warby in particular, they've acquired about, they said that they acquired about 6.6 million customers since their acquisition. So that gives us a pretty clear number, at least kind of from a gut check perspective, like, you know, we know how many people need glasses. Uh, and so, you know, we kind of can can compare, you know, some measure of like the overall market, subset it down to the people who we think would be a better fit for for Warby, no pun intended, <laughs> and then uh, just look at that six point six million and say, huh? I like the yeah, way you like- frame that question, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> look, I can see this. I see where this is going. There we go. Okay, I can do this all. Oh day. man, we all right. Let's, the worst. Let's, 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 last kind of set of question. I'm going to do a rapid fire round with you. Rapid fire. 
in the throats and companies and an idea, and you give me your feedback based on how you think about them in their model. I think of Chewy, for example. Results, eh, okay, big tailwind. And when they, they don't just acquire a customer, they acquire a pet, which is like an annuity. How do you think about Chewy? Yeah, in general, we've we found that pet businesses, for whatever reason, tend to be better from a unit economic perspective. I think because people, they like to be really variety seeking themselves, but for their pets, they like everything to be the same. So you have these stories of people who, you know, they'll say, "We only have, you know, we only bought our dog one type of food until they died." You know, like yeah, literally just kept the food the same the entire yeah, yeah. time. Like we would never do that as humans. Maybe the food, <laughs> it's like that Larson commercial. Okay, uh, Canada Goose shifting from wholesale to direct to consumer big ticket item any thoughts on a a business like that uh yeah in general if you have a really really great wholesale business yeah i think pivoting to direct to cut out the middleman uh can make sense because but i think the key is that you have a lot of market power over the Mm -hmm. middleman you know Mm -hmm. if you do then i think you have the leverage over them to be able to wean the portfolio and not not get not get killed in the process so I, i don't know exactly how the the power dynamic is between the two but i feel like Mm -hmm. that would kind of drive whether i think it's a good idea or not (laughs) okay curate which is hsn qvc a lot of their customer acquisition comes from the television what do you think of that kind of base business yeah they'll they'll need to evolve (laughs) so (laughs) yeah yeah i know they they used to do a lot just purely over the phone so you know they've yeah yeah they've done one evolution but i think they'll, they'll need to do another big one Okay. Last one. RH. Great numbers out recently from RH, which you know, which I think uh, Steve might have predicted wasn't going to be so strong, but neither would I, was I. They're just knocking the cover off the ball. Their customer acquisition costs. Look at their stores. They're 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 massive. They're huge investment. I guess it works out for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly to the extent that we see people being comfortable going back into stores, you'd have to imagine that at least. You know their share of the qual their share of the category could mm. you know could, could improve. Yeah, you know, I think there are concerns about people having pulled forward a lot of demand because of COVID to mm. get all that stuff into their house and they're buying these new homes. And if that slows down, then yeah, yeah, you know, but then it's going to slow down for the whole category. You know, so, can I ask about one more kind of in that regard? Is Peloton because yeah. Peloton seems to me to be a brand that number one, I sh- I'm sure. Most it's got a subscription part to it, but from the equipment perspective, you only most people aren't going to have two or three Pelotons, right? So we have this this period where people are working out from home, maybe some extra cash because of stimulus or because they're not going out, and we see this big surge in Peloton sales, and now it seems like it's a little bit dicier prep, uh, proposition. Any comments on on their business? They're certainly getting a lot of news lately. Yeah, to me, the big question with them is, um, you know, how big the applicable market is. You know, how many people are going to be adopting over the next few years? And some of the analysts' forecasts for how many people are going to adopt over the next ten years are insane. I mean, it's like predictions of fifty million new customer adoptions. Like, we're just not going to see that. So, you know, they'd have to mark the bike down like crazy, I think, to be able to get enough people in the door. But if they mark mark the bike down, then the economics get a lot worse, not only because they're going to make less profit off the the hardware sale, which, you know, they're making a lot of, a lot of their CLV is coming from profit off the the equipment. Uh, But also it implies that they're going to bring in these more marginal shifty customers that are going to be more prone to leaving. So, Mm -hmm. you know, right now they have this insanely low churn rate 
uh, as soon as they start really, really lowering the price, you got to imagine that that their their churn's going to have to move up. Yeah, so exactly how that plays out, I think that that, that to me is, is one of the big questions. So interesting, and I love that term, shifty customers. I want to. I'm going to use that. They're I shifty. call them promiscuous shoppers. <laughs> Like a loss prevention episode. Uh, well, listen, Dan, you know, we, we love to have guests that help our listeners see the future. I think we've seen the future of, of this model. I mean, as you say, it, it's hard to imagine any other way as we think about uh, looking at companies in the future. So thanks so much for joining us and sharing both your background, your approach, and, and some quick insights as an ad hoc. And uh, it was really a, really a treat to uh, listen and, and learn more about your process and models. So thank you. Well, thank you for thinking of me. So, yeah, great to, great to be on the show. And yeah, if, any, if anyone has any questions, I'm pretty active on social media, uh, LinkedIn and Twitter. So yeah, definitely, you know, please, please don't be a stranger. And if you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or your favorite podcast platforms. So you can catch up with all our great interviews. Subscribe so that just automatically shows up. Uh, tell your friends and, and also uh, in new insights and new episodes will show up every week. So tell your friends. Um, because that will help us uh, share the word, the good, the, the, the good wisdom. Now, be sure and check out, <laughs> and be sure and check us out on uh, our new YouTube channel. Not so new anymore. We got a couple episodes up there, uh, and just look for Remarkable Retail. And I'm Steve Dennis. You can check out more of my work at my website, stephenpdennis.com, or on Forbes, or on Twitter. And please check out my second edition of my book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption, available just about everywhere books are sold. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, producer and host of the Voice Retail Podcast and a bunch of other stuff. You can find me on LinkedIn. Learn about me on meleblanc.co. All right, Steve, great episode. Look forward to chatting again next week. Be safe and uh, have a great rest of your day. Same to you. 